The scripture for this morning is from Psalm 96. O sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory, do his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace and your kindness to us. We see it in so many different ways. And we experience it in ways we don't even see. As we gathered last week and thought about the nature of your word, the ministry of the word, and our commitment to know the Word, to study the Word, to exposit the Word. I pray that we would be faithful to that task this morning, that I would faithfully explain the Scriptures and that your people would faithfully listen. And as they listen, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would work, that you would use your Word to transform, change, shape us, pray that you would do this, Holy Spirit, for the glory of the triune God and for the joy of all the peoples of the earth. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord and Savior. Amen. Penn Gillette is one half of the famous magician duo Penn and Teller. Penn Gillette is also a well-known and ardent atheist. In 2009, he posted a very interesting video. Some of you have probably seen the video I'm referencing. But I, wanna, I want us all to hear what Penn said in this video. So an avowed atheist, and this is what he said in this video. Quote, 
I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize or evangelize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, I, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Brothers and sisters, I want, I want you to carefully consider those words. Words not spoken by a well-known pastor who's attempting to be provocative, but words spoken by an atheist. Words that should cause many of us to grapple with the reality of our own unwillingness to share the gospel. Gillette rightly points out that if we believe that if we believe what we say we do about Jesus and his gospel, and if we believe that there are only two possible destinations for every person, heaven or hell, then our unwillingness to share the good news of Jesus certainly appears to be some form of hatred. Or at the very least, it's, it's far from loving. The 19th century Reformed theologian William Plummer said something similar. He wrote, if a redeemed sinner should keep silent on redemption, he would be a monster. Now, hearing the words of both Gillette and Plummer should, at the very least, cause us to think deeply about our witness for Christ. But, Fear of failure and shame over missed opportunities should not be our primary or overarching motivation for engaging in evangelistic relationships. They should cause us to think, but this should not be our primary or overarching motivation for engaging in evangelistic relationships. There must be something more. And we will see that something more this morning, as we look at Psalm 96, we will find our proper motivation for evangelism in Psalm 96. So brothers and sisters, Psalm 96 will not only clarify our motivation for evangelism and mission, but it will also clarify why God has us here. Every believer here has been rescued and redeemed by God in Christ to make disciples. And God has raised up this church and sustained it for over 50 years now in order to make disciples in the Twin Cities and all across the world. So, this second sermon in our series called Life at Redeemer will remind us that we must be a missional church, passionate about making Christ known throughout the whole world. Psalm 96 is a universal call to recognize that the Lord 
reigns. This is a hymn celebrating the reign of God over all creation, and it reminds us that as the creator king, God alone deserves the worship of all people. But how will people hear about the king and his kingdom? It will be through the bold and joyful witness of the people of God. So the task before us, according to this psalm, is to invite the nations, to invite the nations to join us in worshiping our king. So here's what I want you to see first. Believers are called to declare God. Look at verse one again. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. The people of God are to declare his goodness. We are commanded three times in verses one and two to sing, sing, sing. And the direction of our singing is Godward. We are to sing to the Lord. You've heard it said many different ways and by many different people that our worship should have an audience of one. Well, that's only partially true. While our worship is directed to God, it should, as one commentator says, fill all the earth all the time. That's the picture we have here. We are commanded to sing. And, and what is the content of our song? What is the content of our song? Look at verse 2. Tell of his salvation. There is nothing that, that displays the goodness of God more clearly and more beautifully than his glorious salvation. God rescues his people. He delivers them. And every act of faithful covenant love that we read about as we move through the Old Testament is pointing to something greater. God's ultimate rescue mission when he would send his own son to serve as the substitute for sinners. Now friends, I want you to see something that is not only interesting, but it's important. There is a striking similarity between what we find here in Psalm 96 and what we read in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Psalm 96 again, O sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Now, with that in mind, listen to Revelation 5. As the curtain is pulled back and a future heavenly scene is revealed, this is what we read, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Friends, Psalm 96 anticipates the scene recorded in Revelation 5. In Psalm 96, the people of God are called to sing a new song, a song celebrating God's goodness and telling all the earth of his salvation. And in Revelation 5, the choir now consists of people from all over the earth. Those that have heard the song of God's people in Psalm 96, and they are singing together a new song celebrating the goodness of God displayed in the victorious work of the risen Lamb. So Redeemer, don't 
Don't miss this. Psalm 96 is calling each of us to engage in a work that cannot and will not fail. When the church sings, God will save. Not only are we commanded to sing of God's goodness, but also His glory. Look at verse 3. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. So notice the change in direction. In verses 1 and 2, we're told to sing to the Lord. Now we're told to declare His glory among the nations and among all the peoples. So to be clear, this is how we get from Psalm 96 to Revelation 5. We sing, God saves. Someone has to take the message to the people who have never heard the message so they can embrace the message and join the choir. I actually think this is a wonderful way to think about evangelism and missions. It's simply the process by which believers invite unbelievers to join in their singing. Here's our song. Here's what we believe. Join in. Sing with us. Embrace this truth. Now, how is the message described here? Declare his glory and his marvelous works. I love the way one theologian defines the glory of God. He writes, The glory of God is the going public of his infinite worth. It is the public display of the infinite beauty and worth of God. Right? The heavens declare the glory of God. It goes public. So brothers and sisters, how does this apply to us? Well, God has redeemed us and gathered us as a local church so that we might declare and demonstrate his infinite worth through making much of him and giving evidence that he is supremely satisfying. So listen, this is, this is something I desperately want each of us to understand. We will glorify God as we declare and demonstrate his infinite worth through making much of him and giving evidence that he is supremely satisfying. This means every aspect of your life is connected to your witness for Christ. Everything about your life is, is saying something about God's infinite worth or lack thereof. The way you work, the way you use your money, the way you treat your spouse and children, the way you view your singleness, the way you endure suffering, the way you engage in politics, the way you enjoy food and entertainment. In all of these really practical, mundane areas of life, are you declaring and demonstrating God's infinite worth? Are you making much of him and giving evidence that he is supremely satisfying? Or are you leaving all those around you with the impression that you find supremely satisfying exactly what they find supremely satisfying? 
as those who have experienced the new birth, we have been given eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now we are commissioned by God to declare this glory, to tell of his wonderful works. Right? Everybody can get in on this. Everybody can speak of his wonderful works. But you see, we don't do this as begrudging employees of an abusive boss. We engage in this task as those who have been given all the riches of heaven in Jesus. And now we desperately want others to experience the joy of divine rescue, full forgiveness, and eternal love. We're just overflowing with what we have already experienced in Christ. The psalmist calls us to declare God's glory, God's goodness, and God's greatness. Look at verse 4. For great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Our, Our text exposes the greatness of God by contrasting him with false Gods here called idols. Now, I either want you to picture this or you can, actually, you can actually do this for yourself if you're taking notes. Make two columns. Make two columns and at the top of one, write God, capital G, referring to the one true God of the Bible, and above the other column write idols, or if you prefer, gods with a small g. Now in the column of the one true God, I want you to list all the ways he is described in verses four through six. I'll help you. Great, verse four. Worthy of praise, verse 4, to be feared, verse 4, made the heavens, verse 5, splendor, verse 6, majesty, verse 6, strength, verse 6, beauty, verse 6. So he is great, worthy of praise, to be feared. He made the heavens. And then we attribute these things to him as well. Splendor, majesty, strength, and beauty. So take a good look at that list. And then carefully look back through those same verses, verses four through six. And in the idols column, write all the attributes of idols you can find in the text. Take your time. Now, by my careful count, in the idols column, you should have one word, worthless. God is described as great, worthy of praise, reverence, and fear. He is marked by splendor, majesty, strength, and beauty, while all other gods are simply described as worthless. 
friends, worshiping anyone or anything other than the God of the Bible is the height of folly. In fact, I want you to turn to the book of Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah chapter 44. And I want you to hear how the prophet speaks of idols and idol worship. Isaiah 44. Describing the folly of idolatry, here's what the text says. Look at verse 12. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. I love Ray Orland's response to this passage in Isaiah. He asks, what's wrong with that picture? The man has cut down a tree. Nothing wrong with that. God gave us trees. The man warms himself with a fire from that wood. No problem. He bakes bread over the fire. Good idea. Then he stands up the leftover piece of wood and asked it to save him. There is the absurdity. It's absurd to try to derive an ultimate experience from a less than ultimate resource. That's false worship. And friends, here's the startling reality of, of this text. Both what we read in Isaiah and in Psalm 96. Every person on earth that is not worshiping the God of the Bible is worshiping a false God. Among all the peoples of the world, among the countless ethnicities, there are really only two categories of people. There are not worshipers and non-worshipers. There are only true and false worshipers. But everyone is worshiping something or someone. And I think this really needs to rest on us for a minute, this reality. What I just explained is not just true of people in remote parts of the world, but it is true of, of some of you. 
It's true of some of your coworkers, some of your neighbors, some of your friends, some of your family members. They don't just see things a little different than what the Bible teaches. No, all those who do not worship the God of the Bible are false worshipers lost in sin and in need of God's saving grace. And we, we need to see that clearly. Do you see those who are lost as false worshipers? Perhaps that would motivate you more to share the good news, to see them rescued from this entrapment to false worship. Well, thankfully, as we've already established, the God of the Bible is a rescuing God. So notice Verses seven through nine, sinners are called to worship God. So believers are called to declare God. Sinners are called to worship God. Verse seven, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. The psalmist is calling all people everywhere to turn from their idols and embrace what is true about God and engage in the worship of God. So unbelievers are called to ascribe. To ascribe something to someone is to acknowledge that they have that attribute. So all peoples are called to affirm what is true about God. He is glorious and he is strong. The praise and worship of all people rightfully belongs to the triune God. This is why the psalmist is right to say that this worship is due his name. It belongs to him. It doesn't belong to anyone else or anything else. You see that in verse 8. In fact, it is here that we see the primary motivation for evangelism and missions. John Piper writes, Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions, we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples in the greatness of God. Oh, brothers and sisters, do you believe This? Do you want to be part of this? Are you willing to give and even go to declare God's glory among the nations? Do you think this should be a priority at Redeemer? Both individually and corporately? 
Are you actively praying that God will move in your heart and move in the hearts of your fellow church members to more boldly and passionately share the good news of Jesus? I I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but I'm amazed at how God has brought the nations to our doorstep. I live in Plymouth, and within just a few houses of me, there's a family from Malaysia. There's a family uh, that is from somewhere in Asia. We haven't found out yet because they don't speak English, but they brought us something on the Chinese New Year. Uh, this is, this is right where I live. All of us can encounter the nations by, by just walking across the street. But what would drive you to do that? What would motivate you to do that? It's a jealousy for God to be worshipped. When you see your neighbors and you know that this, this person is an unbeliever, I want you to think about this reality. They're giving worship that is due to God. They're giving it to something God created. That worship doesn't belong to an idol. It belongs to God. Are you jealous for God to receive the worship that is rightfully His? I believe this psalm is telling us that we won't engage in mission and evangelism. We won't engage in the singing of God's goodness and His grace unless we believe that God alone deserves the worship of all people. And we won't, listen carefully, we won't long for God to be worshipped by others if He is not being worshipped by us. So if there is a coldness and an ambivalence when it comes to evangelism and missions, I would plead with you, brothers and sisters, to ask yourself some very pointed questions about who or what you are worshipping. When you and I consider the multitudes of those who are lost in China and India and Greece and Italy and Ireland, yes, your heart should break as you consider the possibility of eternal torment. And yes, you should be compelled to obey the Great Commission. But even more, you should be motivated by a holy jealousy for God to receive the worship that He is due. Verse 9 concludes this section by further emphasizing what sets the God of the Bible apart from all other gods. He is holy. Of all the attributes of God, holiness is the one that most uniquely describes Him. It is the sum of of all His other attributes. The word holiness refers to His separateness, His otherness, the reality that He is unlike any other being. It speaks to His complete and infinite perfection. Holiness is the attribute of God that binds all the others together. This is what sets him apart from false gods, from all idols. The worship 
God is calling for, that is rightfully his from all people, must acknowledge his holiness, it should be marked by reverence, submission, and awe. So believers are called to declare God. Sinners are called to worship God. And finally, all people will be judged by God. Verses 10 through 13. All people will be judged by God. This psalm ends with an affirmation of God's sovereign reign and His certain return. And I want to suggest that the final four verses of this psalm take us right back to the beginning. The reality of the final four verses should motivate us to engage in the activity of the beginning of this psalm. I want you to see this, so let me read verses 10 through 13 and then connect those dots. Verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Actually, let's stop there. God is not only the sovereign king of the universe and the creator of all things, but he is also the righteous judge. Now, if God is the righteous judge and he is due the worship of all people, then all those who fail to worship God will be judged rightly. They will be judged according to a perfectly holy standard. Our statement of faith explains this future event as follows. We believe that the end of the world is approaching, that at the last day Christ will descend from heaven, raise the dead from the grave to final retribution, that a solemn separation will then take place, that the wicked will be a judge to endless punishment and the righteous to endless joy, and that this judgment will fix forever the final state of men in heaven or hell on principles of righteousness. Friends, this coming day of judgment should drive us even more fervently to obey the first part of this psalm. We should feel the urgency to sing to the Lord a new song, to tell of His salvation from day to day, to declare His glory among the nations and recount His wondrous deeds among all the people. Again, our primary motivation is an unquenchable passion for God to receive the worship that He is due but we also unashamedly want lost men, women, and children to be rescued from their sin and given new life in Christ. We want people to be happy in Christ. The final stanza of Psalm 96 warns of coming judgment, but the overwhelming emphasis is on the joy of Christ's return. Look at verse 11. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. The, the Psalms often depict non-living things worshiping and praising God, but there's something more happening here. This is a poetic and powerful way of describing a restored creation, a world that is untainted by the curse. Isn't this wonderful? 
What does Paul write in Romans 8? Even creation is groaning, longing for release from corruption. Well, Psalm 96 foretells the time when that will happen. Brothers and sisters, do you long for the day when Christ will return? Again, there are There are two sides to this, the warning of his coming judgment, but also the promise of his final victory and eternal reign. Now here's what I love about this psalm. All the peoples, in verse 5, who are giving their worship to worthless idols, they can become part of the joyful choir of the redeemed. Instead of God's return being a time of judgment for them, it could be the ultimate cause for celebration. All they have to do is hear our song and join in singing, the Lord reigns. When the church sings, God will save As I close this morning and we prepare our hearts for the table, I want to conclude where I began. So here's what I said as we began our study of this psalm. Psalm 96 is a universal call to recognize that the Lord reigns. This is a hymn celebrating the reign of God over all creation, and it reminds us that as the Creator King, God alone deserves the worship of all people. Nothing I talked about this morning makes any sense if God is not the sovereign creator. If he is not sovereign, if he is not the sovereign creator ruling and reigning over all things, if he is not the reigning king of heaven, then he doesn't deserve the worship of all people. And he cannot save sinners and has no right or power to judge them. But what verse 10 declares is absolutely true. It is the source of our confidence. The Lord reigns. That is the source of our confidence and it is our song to the nations. This is what we want them to know. The Lord reigns. He created all things. And He made a way for false worshipers, for sinners like you and me to be reconciled to a holy God through His Son, Jesus Christ. The Lord reigns. As you consider what you've heard this morning and prepare your heart to take of the bread and the cup, let me leave you with one pastor's explanation of those three profoundly important words, the Lord reigns. So why don't you close your eyes as you begin to prepare your hearts and just listen to this. The Lord reigns means that not one atom wobbles from its place. Not one 
crab nebula wonder, wanders from its assigned role. Not one hair takes up residence in your hairbrush apart from his command. Not one sparrow is taken down by a stray cat unless the Father of all has determined that it should be so. But this is not raw power. This is no despot who reigns, but rather our Heavenly Father. This is the one whose Son took on human flesh in order to die for all the sins of all His people. Do you think the problem of evil is a problem? God created this world and everything in it and determined that it should go in just the way it is going so that all the evil in all the world might be fashioned into the shape of a Roman spear and rammed into his side. He is our maker. He is our beauty. He is our glory. He is the King, the one who reigns, and his crown is made of thorns. Friends, please take time to consider this King. Consider his reign and rule. Consider the worship that He deserves. Consider His call on your life to make much of Him among the nations. For some of you, that, that may mean making much of God in the midst of everyday life with your children. This psalm has everything to do with that. For some, this psalm may compel you to go next door, to go across the street. For some, God may be using this psalm to call you to pack up and to take His Gospel to those who have never heard. Consider your king, and when you are ready, come and take of his broken body and his shed blood. Be reminded of his love. And let that love compel you to do something with this gospel that you have embraced.